A few moments ago, you heard a prayer that the Holy Spirit would move among us. So my question, is the Holy Spirit here? This text that was just read says that we are right now, at this moment, a part of something that the Holy Spirit is orchestrating. I'd like to explain that, but I'd like you to be keenly aware of the work of the Holy Spirit, even as we begin to examine this text. So I'd like to look at it with a kind of a one, two, and three. There's one key gift I'd like to talk about. There's two warnings from the Holy Spirit, and then there's three who are at work orchestrating the event that I'm talking about. So begin with one gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the gift of prophecy here. Now, you know, if you've been in church for any amount of time, that there's a lot of discussion about what this gift really is. And I read and I try to keep up with all the debates and interesting ideas that are coming up, but I'm not going to pretend to cover all that or spend very much time on that. I'd like to approach it in a very simple way. I hope not simple-minded, but a very simple way. I look at texts like this, which are part of Scripture, and I can't just ignore them. I can't just throw them out. Or other texts, like 1 Corinthians 14, which also talks about the same gift, the gift of prophecy, and says that a church should desire it, that it's good for a church to want this. So I don't want to ignore it. Instead, I want to ask, what can it mean for us today? So what does prophecy mean? I think most people will say, well, prophecy is predicting the future, right? And if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that that is one of the things that the prophets, for example, of the Old Testament, the ones who wrote the Old Testament did. But it's not the only thing. If you read the prophets, you see that, well, they also did what I think we would call preaching. They preached to God's people. They preached about God's will for how they were to live, how they were to worship, and how they were to treat one another. And so people say that it's forth-telling as much as foretelling, you know? It's, it's telling God's word, explaining it as much as saying what's going to happen in the future. And I think you'll see that when you read the Old Testament, for that matter, when you read the New Testament. But often when they preached in this way, when they were telling God's will, you'll notice something interesting. They sometimes quoted the Bible. We can call it that. They quoted what had previously been revealed through the prophets of God. There's so many examples of this, but you know, in Exodus 36, there's this wonderful revelation of God to Moses. One of those rare times when God speaks about himself, he says, I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that text is quoted over and over again in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in the prophets. It's given slightly different applications in each case. You can look at the law of Moses, God's word, and it's quoted often, and it's often preached from. People of God are admonished to keep the law of God. You can look at the book of Genesis, for example. It's often referred to in the Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. When issues came up, for example, about sexuality and gender and marriage, the Lord Jesus, as well as the apostles, quoted Genesis to apply it, to answer those specific situations which were arising at that time. So, yeah, the prophets did all that. But you'd say prophets 
are only those used to write the Bible, right? Well, yes, they are the ones who wrote it. In fact, the prophets and the apostles we know were ordained by God to receive revelation and record it for the people of God. That's what we call the Bible. And by the way, the Bible is finished. There's no more books being written. For example, the New Testament was written by the apostles who had witnessed the teaching of Jesus and were witnesses to his resurrection, and they're gone. So there's not going to be a first, second, and third book of Roberto. I'm sorry. It just won't happen because it's done. The, the whole Bible is complete. So then, what does prophecy mean today then? So we've talked about how apostles and prophets were instrumental in actually writing the Bible, but what does it mean today? How can we apply this text today? Well, here's how I see it. And I want to emphasize that because if you don't agree, I think that's fine. We can have further conversations about this, but here's after a lot of reading and wrestling with this for years, this is what makes sense to me. I see that there's a range over which prophecy functions. There is, for example, what I just said, prophets are those who write the authoritative word of God. God speaks to them and we listen to them as though we're listening to the very word of God. On the other hand, if I can take this to be the authoritative word of God, there's a whole range of other meanings. And on the other hand, on the other end, there's what we would call preaching. It's taking what is the authoritative word of God, the scriptures, and applying it to the lives and situations of God's people, explaining it, teaching it, helping people to understand it. So there's prophets who spoke God's word, there's preachers who use God's word to bless God's people. And I think there's a whole other range of applications and functions of prophecy that I'm not going to take time to discuss today. You'll see something of that even in this letter of Paul in 1 Thessalonians. You see how this range is true if you consider the words of Paul, the apostle, who's writing scripture, and the way he talks about prophecy in our text. So, for example, you notice in our text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, examine everything carefully. Who is he talking about? Well, verse 20, don't despise prophecy or prophetic utterances, but examine everything. Hold on to what's good. Throw away what's evil. So, so they're not speaking scripture. They can't say, thus saith the Lord, because they could be dead wrong. Paul is saying that. You have to examine it. Some is good, some is bad. By contrast, look at how Paul refers to his own words. Look at chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You see the note, the difference there? His teaching is the very word of God. It's scripture. But prophecy in our text is something that has to be judged, has to be compared to scripture to see if it's good or bad. So here's the way I sense it. I think the primary, not the only way, but the primary way that we experience prophecy today is the preaching of the Word of God. I'll point out three similarities, okay? Three ways in which preaching and prophecy function in similar ways. Here's at least three ways. There, there's probably others. First of all, preaching and prophecy function in the same way. 
If you look at texts like 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy edifies, exhorts, consoles people. Well, that's just what preaching does. Prophecy speaks to unbelievers. Well, that's what preaching does. It helps people learn, and that's what preaching does. In Acts 15, there's two prophets. It said that when they prophesied, it strengthened the people of God. That's what preaching does. So they function in the same way. Here's another thing. They're both inspired by the Spirit of God. We know that prophecy is a gift of the Spirit. This passage that I've been referring to, 1 Corinthians 14, explicitly says that. And it's the same Holy Spirit who inspires preachers. Preaching is not scripture at all. It doesn't have the thus saith the Lord authority that only the Bible has. But it's the Spirit who gives the preacher insight into what the Bible says. And just as importantly, it's the Holy Spirit that gives the preacher insight into what God's people need to hear. What nourishment their souls need. And thirdly, just like preaching, prophecy has to be judged, has to be evaluated. Of course, we see that in our text, you know, examine, test everything. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29, it says the same thing. Let the others judge what's happening. By others, it means you. Judge what's happening. Examine if it's right. So preachers have to be judged. Their words held up to the Bible. You know why? Because they could be lying. I could be lying to you. I could be subverting the gospel. It was happening right in the New Testament. Read Galatians, the first chapter. You could be undoing the gospel. So you have to ask yourself, just like with prophecy, as with preaching, is this guy lying or telling the truth? Are you asking yourself that, by the way, right now? You should be. You really should be, right? Is this guy lying or telling the truth? So that's how I understand this text. On the one end is the absolute word of God. On the other end is what we would call preaching. Because I think prophecy is more available since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. I, I take the words of Peter in that very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. I think he meant it when he said that as the Spirit of God is poured out, men and women will prophesy. It's a wonderful gift of God, and that's why Paul said, seek it. It's given more widely. And, and that's why men and women of God through the ages have equated the two, prophecy and preaching. I'm not saying there's no discussion about it. I'm not saying that. But, for example, if you go to the 16th century, to that great reformer John Calvin, when he was commenting on this text, here's what he said. Let us understand prophesying to mean the interpretation of Scripture applied to the present need, which is what we would call preaching. In fact, just a few years after that, there was a, a great Puritan writer who wanted to train people in preaching. He wrote a book on how to preach. And the name of the book was The Art of Prophesying. They equated the two. And of course, there's many modern scholars who agree with that. John Stott is one. He, he, he writes that in preaching, God gives insight into the meaning of Scripture, its application to the contemporary world, and his will for particular people in particular situations. So that's how I make texts like this real and applicable. I don't want to throw it out. I don't want to pass over it and say, well, this has nothing to do with us. Preaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the same Holy Spirit works in the hearts of hearers to make it fruitful. Without the Holy Spirit, it's just a lecture. We might as well be in a classroom. So my prayer 
Every single Sunday morning, sometimes I walk up and down here, for decades now has been the words of that hymn, slightly paraphrased. I say, Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of thy word. It has to be that. That's what preaching is. Does God answer that prayer? (laughs) You know, very honestly, I'm not always sure. Do you think God's answering that right now? Here we are. Here's that event. Preaching. Is God answering that right now? It's something you have to decide. It's something we need to seek God's judgment about. It's something that verses 19 through 21 ask you to do. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances or preaching, we would say. But examine, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So that's that one gift. We could go on and on about that, but let me go to the two warnings here, which I just read about. Don't quench, don't despise. And those are two warnings from the Holy Spirit. It means it's not just up to the preacher, right? There's a great call upon every hearer of every message or every sermon. Don't quench. The the word means, really, don't put a wet blanket on what the Holy Spirit. Don't snuff out the fire of the Holy Spirit. Don't put out the candle that's giving light to everyone else. It's, it's a very strange thought, by the way, when you think of it, right? Quenching the Holy Spirit, the omnipotent Spirit of God. And here's little old people quenching the Spirit of God. How can that be? And yet, we can do it. That's why we're warned. Apparently, the Thessalonians were doing it. And that's why they're warned. It's very interesting how gentle the Holy Spirit is often pictured. Remember, 1 Kings 19, he comes to Elijah, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but in that still, small voice. And because of that, we see that over and over, there's this delicacy to how we have to treat the Holy Spirit, spiritually speaking. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, I won't read all the preceding verses. We covered them some weeks ago. But that verse says that deciding not to please God's design and purpose for sexuality is really rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. We have the power to reject the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says we can grieve the Spirit when we harbor anger or bitterness or malice towards other people who are in Christ. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Imagine. The omnipotent Spirit of God. So we can quench, reject, grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think even more. You notice in the previous text that we looked at a few weeks ago, like verse 12 through 15, we saw that there was there references to the fruit of the Spirit. It's talking about love. It's talking about patience. talking about goodness and peace. And we can say no to all that. The reason it's commanded is because we are to say yes to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 5, it describes the Thessalonians. It says that when the gospel came to them, it came with the power of the Holy Spirit. It didn't just come as a lecture or a little book that they could go through and fill out blanks to, but had the power to transform their lives, but they could have said no to that. But no, it says they received the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 1, verse 6, it describes how they reacted to persecution. You know how you react to persecution. The very natural response is bitterness or anger, wrath. But it says they responded with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
What a miracle. They could have said no to the Holy Spirit. They could have wallowed in self-pity and bitterness. The Holy Spirit was at work and he's constantly at work. And so it says, quench not. We often speak, by the way, of individual responses to the Holy Spirit. Don't we, you know, walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, be comforted by the Spirit. But imagine here, it's talking about how we can, in some manner, banish the Holy Spirit from this corporate event. Something that's happening in the church as a whole. We can put out the fire here. We can put a wet blanket, if you will, on what the Holy Spirit is doing in the body as a whole. We can cast out the life, the energy, the power that the Holy Spirit brings to us, enabling us to worship in loving God and loving one another. Quench not. So there's many ways, I suppose, that we could quench the Holy Spirit, but our text focuses on one. Don't despise prophecy or don't despise prophetic utterances, as our text says. So that's the second command. Don't despise. Don't quench. Don't despise. To despise means to treat with contempt. Look down on. Treat as nothing. Reject. Now why would anybody, why would anybody despise preaching, do you suppose? I know right now you're conjuring up like a thousand reasons, right? Because there's a lot of reasons to do it. Just to give you a historical sample, for them in the Thessalonica, it could have been because there were false prophets. We know there were some predicting that the resurrection had already taken place. We know Already in the New Testament, some were subverting the gospel. Others were preaching for greedy motives. So it could be they despised preaching because they had seen plenty of bad apples. Don't want that. But secondly, it could also be the listener. Why do we despise it? Well, don't you think we tune out the word when it doesn't agree with our opinions and our lifestyle? We really don't want to hear it. Sometimes we just don't plain care about preaching. We don't have any sense that right now the Holy Spirit of God is at work, whether we're aware of it or not. We just sort of shrug our shoulders. We despise what the Spirit of God is doing. And then thirdly, it could be the preacher. I think that could be a very good reason. Listen to me, you listen to a pastor, you say, you know, I've heard a lot better. And you have. I mean, these days you can listen to preaching from all over the world. There's some fabulous preachers out there. You know, they used to say the same thing in the first century. Not about me, but uh, about like Paul. They said, oh, Paul's okay, but oh, he should hear Apollos. The Corinthians, it actually says, that described, he said, this is Paul's word, his preaching as contemptible. In 1 Timothy, it says that the young man, Timothy, was despised because of his youth. You know, when he got up to preach, people said, what does he know? Just a kid. There's lots of reasons we can despise because of who the preacher is. On the other hand, there's good reasons sometimes. There's this vast gulf between you know, the authority and the beauty and the depth of God's word and, well, the shallowness, the shaky voice, the tentative statements of the preacher. So it's easy to despise the preacher. In fact, I, I guess you could say it's a wonder anybody listens to any preaching. And yet, here's the command. Here's the command. Maybe that's why we need the command. Don't despise prophetic utterances or don't despise preaching. And so, for my third point, there's three at work right at this moment. And I'd like to point them out. The Holy Spirit is at work. We've been talking about that. He is working whether we notice that work or not. He's at work whenever 
preaching is done, at least when it's God's word that's being preached. Not when, you know, the preacher is sort of sounding off on his favorite subjects, going on and on about condemning a particular sin, usually one that gives him a lot of applause because he knows nobody in the congregation thinks that they're suffering or struggling with that sin, or some political point. No, but when the preacher is focusing on the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is at work. It's His Word for His people. And so look what's happening. Here's preaching delivered through a fallible preacher to fallible hearers. But it's fruitful. It's commended to us. Why? For only one reason, because the Holy Spirit is at work. He makes it fruitful. He makes it nourishing to God's people. In fact, he's ordained it to nourish God's people. So one who is busy right now at this moment is the Holy Spirit of God. The second part of the drama that's taking place right now is the preacher himself. He has to work. I I think it's an affront to God to not pray. For the preacher to step into the pulpit, the lectern, without preparation. To not seek the Holy Spirit in studying God's Word. What does this text really mean? And then asking the Holy Spirit, okay, I can read about it, but why? Why should I preach this to my people? Why do you want God's people to hear this truth right now? What's happening in their lives or how is it preparing them for what will happen? There has to be that kind of preparation. George Herbert was a a pastor in a small church in England let's say in the 17th century, early. But he's known really for his poetry. Many of his hymns are still sung. And he wrote this wonderful poem. I won't quote the whole thing for you at all, but it draws this wonderful analogy. He says a preacher is like stained glass. And the glory of the stained glass is really nothing unless the light is shining through it, unless the word of God is shining through the preacher. I don't know if you've ever seen this stained glass at night when it's dark. All you see is just those black lines of the leading between the pieces of glass. That's all it is. It's kind of not only plain, you might even say it's a little ugly. But when the sunlight shines through it, when it's clean, there's nothing impeding the sunlight, then it's glorious. And he says that's what should be happening in preaching. A preacher should be directing attention to what lies above and behind, which is the Word of God. So there's a great responsibility of the preacher to take very seriously this gift and calling of God. And I say that to myself, and I say that to others who fill this pulpit and other pulpits. It's very easy to fail, by the way. It's easy to be slothful. It's easy to do what comes naturally to entertain the people, but not present the Word itself. I remember reading about a time in England, a dark time spiritually some centuries ago. The Bible was not in the hands of the people, so they relied on the clergy to preach God's word. And the clergy were slothful, lazy. They didn't care. And so, you know, in England, they read their sermon. So they would have a sermon, and sometimes they'd just read the same one over and over. Who knows? You know, they're all sleeping anyway. I'll just read the same thing. Let's see if anybody says anything. But the young boys in the congregation were sharp. And they despised it, what this pastor was doing. And so, according to this, this historian, they would sit in the pews and they would mimic and recite the words of the sermon along with the pastor. Sloth. It can happen. It kills the people, leaves them hungry, and it 
really does quench the Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit's at work. The preacher should be at work. And then lastly, maybe as importantly, more importantly, you have to be at work. There's a great responsibility on you as the hearers in this text. Very easy for you to quench the Holy Spirit. Very easy for you to despise prophetic utterances. Very easy for you, as uh, verse 21 and 22 say, very easy for you to miss out on what is really good, to not hold fast to what is good, because you just missed it. What did he say? I think that was good. And it's very easy for you to swallow something which is evil. Oh, that guy was so good. I think he must be right. I'm going to guide my life by what he said. It's very easy to do. And so it says, test. Examine everything carefully, verse 21. You've got a lot to do. I don't see how anybody can sleep. I'm sure you've got so much work to do right now. You have to examine everything. You can't quench. You can't despise. You have to figure out what to reject, what to hold on to fast. It's tough work. So you see the implication here of that. Why, why should we examine it? Well, it's because the preacher could be wrong, because he's fallible. He could be dead wrong. He could be deadly wrong, right? It says, throw out what's evil. So he could be deadly wrong. There's no inherent authority in any priest or pope or bishop, famous author or famous preacher or pastor in a local church. It's only in the word of God. So test. But you see, there's a second implication. Why do you have to test? Because hearers can also be gullible. What is he saying? Is it good? I don't know. I better find out. So how do we test? Can I give you three ways of testing? I'm not saying it's the only things, but here's three things you should be doing. First, of course, examine the words. And that's what our text is really saying, right? Is this really what Scripture says? It's what the Bereans did. You know that. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Here was Paul, the apostle that spoke to them. And you know what it says? Every day they went home and they examined the scripture to see if what Paul said was really accurate. You know what that means? You all have homework. Every Sunday you have homework. Go examine whether what I'm saying is so. You have to examine the words. Here's the second thing. You have to examine their lives of every preacher. Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, consider the conduct of your leaders. You know, how they conduct their lives. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus told us exactly, he's talking about false prophets. He says, you know how you tell them? Look at the fruit of their lives. Just like a tree is known by its fruit, so you'll know them by the fruit they bear in their lives. Oh, these have been terrible days for us as Christians. Heartbroken. Famous leaders, authors, song leaders, Preachers falling into immorality, saying all kinds of things that are not in Scripture, sometimes even disowning the faith and walking away. And it's left us reeling. I, I wonder what it would have been like if we had really known them. I mean, personally known them. I mean, if we could have watched their families. You know, what kind of food do they eat? What if we could have watched them when they were grocery shopping and the, and the clerk, the cashier treated them rudely? How did they react? What if we could have driven in the car with them and somebody cut them off? How do they respond? What if we had really known them? What if we could really have seen the fruit of their lives? I, I think sometimes those that are famous and well-known are also very, very distant from us. 
We know very little except the little picture on the flap of the dust cover of their books or the publicity that we see. It says examine their lives. And here's the third way. Look at the effects of the preaching. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, but also in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Does it really build up or edify? Does it challenge to godly living? Or is it tickling people's ears? Is it a motivational talk? You know, you leave saying, oh, I feel so good after that. I feel like I could take on the world. But is it good? Is it scriptural? Is it true? We say, I just love that sermon. What did he say? I've shared this with you before. I once had a really excellent illustration. I was speaking, not in this church, but elsewhere. And, you know, it was funny and just compelling. And I, I just thought it was great. People paid rapt attention as I went through the illustration. And afterwards, this guy came up to me and said, that was such a great illustration. And, you know, a lot of illustrations, just nice stories, but yours really made the point. And he looked for me for, uh, for, for a second. He looked up and says, now, what was your point? It can happen. We can hear wonderful stories. We can hear great jokes. It can be entertaining, but empty. It can move us emotionally. Oh, he always gets me right here, you know. I feel like crying. It can recite our favorite doctrines. Boy, do we need to hear more about that sin. But does it draw us to love the Lord and love others? Does it make us really understand the word of God more clearly? Does it as Hebrews 13 says, cause us to pursue peace with others and holiness before God. We have to look at the effects of the sermon. So hearers have work to do, just as the preachers have work to do, just as the Holy Spirit is doing his work at this moment. Preachers have to pray, Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of thy word. And, li and listeners have to come expecting this drama to take place every Sunday. You have to do that. The Holy Spirit is going to do something. And you have to pray, Lord, Spirit of God, address your words to me this morning because I'm hungry. Feed me, Lord. Feed me. By God's grace, may it happen here week by week. Amen. Lord, we've heard this and we know how the things that you call us to do can be absolutely empty unless we understand and we take them to heart. We know that reading the Bible can be just an empty exercise. Coming to church can be just a tradition. And Lord, really, if the truth be told, taking part in the communion meal can be just a ritual. So as we sang earlier, Lord, open the eyes of our heart, we pray. To understand your word, to be open to hear whatever you have to say to us week by week. And Lord, with glad and, and thankful hearts, receive what you've done for us on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. Amen.